This is 15-Minute History, a podcast for educators, students, and history buffs featuring the minds and talents of the University of Texas at Austin. 15-Minute History is a partnership of Not Even Past and Hemispheres in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin. Welcome back. I'm your host, Christopher Rose, with the Center for Middle Eastern Studies. My guest in the studio is James Joshua Hudson, who is a doctoral candidate in the Department of History, where he's finishing up his dissertation and specializes in the history of modern China. Welcome to the studio. Thanks, Chris. So today's topic, we're going to be talking about uh, Hunan province in China. So what specifically are we going to be looking at? Well, there was a rice riot that occurred in April of 1910 in the capital city of Hunan, which is Changsha. And Changsha's modern development in the late 19th and early 20th centuries is the topic of my dissertation. And there's a chapter in it on uh, this rice riot. And it's also the subject of a, an article that I recently published. So for listeners who may not be familiar with the geography of China, place Hunan province for us. Hunan is uh, located in the south part of China, sort of in the hinterland uh, so it's a province that, during this time, hadn't had a lot of contact with the West. It's an agricultural province. A lot of China's rice comes from Hunan, and, and there's also uh, mining that's a very uh, prominent part of the economy there. So, uh, yeah, it's a southern province, and it's also, Hunan is famous for its food, right. for its spicy food. Right. So, so how, bi- how, how big of a city was Changsha at this time? You said it was the capital. It was the capital city. At this time, it was probably, I would say, two to 300,000 people. Okay. Um, so what happened in 1910 with these riots over rice? Well, basically, uh, to talk about what happened in 1910, I need to go back a little bit uh, to set up the context. But like I said, uh, Hunan was a, a, a hinterland province, hadn't had much contact with the West, but it, it does have a major river that flows north to south. Uh, or south to north, I guess, but up into the Yangtze River. And um, Western countries, uh, Britain and Japan, who was becoming a a colonial power in East Asia in its own right at that time, they wanted access to this river that was coming from Changsha because it flowed up to the Yangtze River to a treaty port city called Hanko. And so in 1902, uh, or it was 1902 or 1904, the city opened as a treaty port, uh, where Western businesses could officially set up shop in the city. And then, you know, just a few years later, by this time, by 1910, there's more than a dozen Western companies and Japanese companies uh, who've set up shop in a city that was traditionally sort of very anti-Western, uh, had had a history going back into the uh, late 19th century of uh, just these anti-Christian riots, these anti-Western riots that had happened when the first missionaries tried to enter the province and that didn't go well and the the western buildings were built in this concession area and were built you know with a lot of money and that caused a lot of resentment and there was an issue with uh, some of the carpenters hired contracted to build the western buildings in Changsha were hired from from other cities and this really upset the local kind of labor force of local carpenters and so that's part of what was happening and then the other part is that uh, rice was being exported out of Hunan uh, for profit and was controlled by these local gentry merchants. And uh, one of them was this man named Ye Dehui, and he was very wealthy and he kind of had a bad reputation among uh, some people in the city for just being this greedy uh, rice merchant. And merchants like him would uh, own these large 
rice houses, these storehouses, because there was a whole system of granaries that existed in the city, some big, some small, but he owned one of the biggest ones. And during this riot, when there was a major shortage of rice, he hoarded grain. And the other thing I should say is there was a big flood that happened um, in 1909 that uh, caused a lot of peasants from the countryside to uh, flee into the city. And um, they sort of built a shanty uh, town for themselves outside the south gate of Changsha. Because Chinese cities at this time were still surrounded by walls and had gates. And the south wall of Changsha at this time was kind of a, a gathering area for uh, people who were coming from the countryside for travelers, uh, traveling from the south. And outside the south gate, there was sort of a shanty town along this ridge called uh, Hungry Stomach Ridge. And a lot of poor people lived there. And there was a pond um, outside there called uh, La Long Pond. And it was there um, in the early days of April 1910 that a, that a, that a woman uh, took her own life with her two children because she had tried to purchase rice uh, from a local granary owner. Uh, she was refused by him because two of her coins that she tried to purchase the rice with were uh, not very good, not very good quality. And so she went back and was able to find some better coins. But then when she came back, he told her that uh, the price of rice had uh, gone up just in that short time. And so she was just so desperate. She was this poor woman. And she went and committed suicide in this pond outside the South Gate. And her husband was a water carrier named Huang Guisun, and uh, he found out about it later in the day, and he became so distraught over his wife and children committing suicide that he took his own life as well. So news of this spread throughout the city, and people just became really upset. They were upset at this particular granary owner named uh, Dai Shun. And then a few days after that, another woman got into an argument with uh, Dai Shun at his granary, over the same thing, over buying rice, because women, you know, at this time would were the main procurers of food, and she got into a big argument with him, and a crowd gathered, and uh, it turned into a full-on riot. The the crowd turned on Dai Shun, and pillaged his store, and beat him to death, almost to death, and then um, the peasants, I shouldn't say peasants, but the the urban commoners who rioted. Uh, use that as a pretext to eventually march on the, the government compound in the city. So I kind of summed it up there for you a little bit. Sorry, I went on. So th- we've got a very volatile mix going on here. You've got the, as you describe them, indigent lower classes who, who basically fled to Changsha because their lands have been wiped out in this flood. Rice is at a premium. The rice houses are price-gouging people, and they've all converged on the government complexes. Where does the resentment against the foreign enterprises kick in? Or is that just part of the the anger against authority? I mean, there were two kinds of resentment being expressed on part of uh, rioting commoners. One was anger at the local government for allowing these Westerners to come into the city. And this was also at a time when resentment toward the last dynasty of uh, China at the time, the Qing, was kind of at a high. And people were just fed up uh, with the Qing government. And uh, this was the year right before the uh, revolution of 1911, which brought down the Qing, and uh, the first sort of Republican government was established. But the resentment toward the Westerners, I think a lot had to do with just the, the presence of foreign buildings, the wealth it represented, 
And then, like I said, a lot of the, the commoners who rioted were these members of these, these carpenters' guilds who had been cheated out of work. A lot of the research in this chapter comes from these oral histories uh, that were conducted in the 1970s by this uh, middle school teacher named uh, Liu Duping. And uh, some of the people he interviewed were, were either eyewitnesses or participants in the, in the writing. What kind of foreign business was going on there? Were they exporting rice, and was that part of the resentment? They that... were. Uh, there were import-export companies. There were oil companies uh, like Jardine Matheson, uh, Butterfield and Swire, are two prominent British import-export companies. Uh, the Jardine Building is one of the most uh, prominent buildings in Hong Kong today. Right. So, um, Amco, and several Japanese shipping companies. There were also foreign missions. Uh, the most prominent foreign mission at the time in Changsha was Yale. Uh, in Yale University. Yale, Yale University in 1904 had set up a mission there. But it was, a, it was sort of a medical mission. It was, they built a, a school, a hospital, and a medical college that went on to become Yali, named Yali or the Xiangya Medical School, and uh, sort of established Yale's presence in the city, one that uh, exists to this day. I want to come back to the oral histories momentarily. So what is the trajectory of the riots? What, what happens? The, the woman uh, committed suicide on April 11th, 1910, and the riots began shortly left thereafter and lasted for about three days. Most of the oral histories cover the attack on the government compound, during which the governor of Hunan fled, and uh, his like lieutenant governor had to take his place and then by the third day of the riot, uh, things had started to settle down, but um, a lot of the uh, conspirators, uh, rioters who had attacked the government compound were rounded up and, and shot uh, wow. and executed, their, and their heads were placed on the city wall as kind of a warning. But one interesting thing about this riot is that uh, Mao Zedong, you know, who became the future leader of China, uh, was a young middle school student at the time, and he reflected later and years later in an interview with Edgar Snow uh, that you know that riot had a big impact on him and kind of shaped his was the beginning of shaping his kind of revolutionary kind of Marxist understanding of, of history. So you mentioned that they converged on the government compound. What happened then? Well the the Qing uh, government compound in Changsha at that time was sort of a walled city within a walled city. It didn't have uh, much contact with the outside world and um, a lot of the officials and runners that were working there were all people from outside outside of Hunan because there was a, a policy in uh, imperial rule that, had, that went back um, it was called the rule of avoidance <laughs> um, that went back several dynasties which was basically uh, local officials uh, working in government or politics or whatever would always be uh, appointed from outside the province to avoid, you know, the uh, the appearance of favoritism and whatnot. So these were outsiders, and they were perceived as such. So the the government compound was a walled compound, and uh, you know, on the outside of it, it had uh, these two ceremonial lions. We call them the Fu lions that you see in a lot of Chinese buildings today, uh, even like restaurants. Mm -hmm. And um, they toppled those over and they stormed over, you know, the, 
the the screen uh, this is kind of hard to explain but if you ever enter a traditional Chinese building or residence a lot of time there will be a screen uh, there would be a, a stone wall called the uh, Yunmen and it was sort of has to do with these ideas related to feng shui of bad spirits tend to travel in a straight line and so it would hit this wall and have to divert itself anyway the commoners uh they ransacked over that and then they went inside and they burned the inside of the compound with gasoline and they also sawed down the um the Qing government mast which was like this big giant pole with the imperial banner and the the seal of the uh the governor on it and they uh, took a saw and sawed it down these these commoners were sort of attacking symbols of uh state power you know and trying to delegitimize state power in that way and what I'm trying to do in my chapter is just sort of give some of these commoners a little bit of agency because the prevailing theory uh, has been eventually this local gentry one of them Yedahui who I mentioned earlier eventually took control of the riot and took advantage of the crowd's indignation to go ahead and burn all of the foreign buildings and compounds as well but in historical writing on the riot, there's been kind of a tendency to say, yeah, the gentry took control of the rioters and that's it. But, you know, I think, I mean, it's so hard to gauge, you know, what, what a crowd thinks or what the crowd does, you know, and, and every instance in history has its own unique kind of, you know, circumstances. So I don't want to generalize too much but i just think there's a degree of agency going on in part of the commoners who rioted because they are disgruntled carpenters there, there are people who are starving and they have a very clear kind of goal in mind to address grievances you know so after they destroyed the government compound they went to the foreign compound and wreaked havoc there was it was it also similarly destroyed there were several foreign buildings that were destroyed there were schools uh like the british consular office and all these buildings were located on the riverbank you know with easy access to the wharfs and ports and whatnot most of them were destroyed or burned and but the only one that survived uh, as far as i know was the yale compound and a lot of it had to do with the uh, reputation of benevolence that uh, the doctor in charge was uh, this man named edward hume and they had done enough philanthropic sort of medical work in the city to kind of earn a, a good reputation but it's also owing to the, I keep using this term agency, but the, I mean, towns and cities in China in this period were, there was a form of local government uh, or, or community organization, I should say. Uh, there were community associations, neighborhood associations. And um, this one neighborhood association where the Yale compound was located at the time, right in the center of the city, they posted a notice on the front of the, on the gate of the Yale compound saying, we are the members of the street association and we don't want this building to be harmed. And it wasn't. And I think that speaks a lot to the, the power of, you know, of local government and the power of, you know, a community. So again, there's, there's a lot going on. There's a lot informing this riot. It's not just massive people, you know, going on this frenzy. There's some uh, intelligence or consciousness going on. So yeah, the Yale compound was spared. And what's interesting is that this notice was posted and it was the actual notice itself was preserved by Yale and uh, is archived at the uh, 
the Yale China Association archives at Yale, and I found it um, last summer. Wow! <laughs> uh, when I was doing research there, and I didn't. I mean, I I had already known about the existence of this uh, this placard, but I, I had no idea that it would be archived there. And I just I sort of stumbled upon it. And when I found it, when I took it out of this little crate it was in, I sort of fell out of my chair um, and was like, "Wow!" Because it was in a frame. And what I think probably happened is that it was in a frame, and I'm I'm sure it probably hung in the offices of Yale in China in Changsha for many years. Uh, maybe even framed by Edward Hume himself. Wow. You mentioned the existence of oral histories of the riot, and I know from our, our conversation before uh, we sat down to record that y- you also discovered these. So how did how did you find those? Well, just sort of really randomly, you know. I mean, someone once told me that a lot about doing history or doing the kind of work we do, a lot of times it's just about showing up. And, you know, the uh, fall of 2010... I went to Changsha to do sort of a preliminary kind of research trip because I hadn't lived I hadn't lived in the city at all. I didn't know anything about the city really, and um, I just sort of went there to establish some contacts and do sort of a, uh, some preliminary work. And I was in a coffee shop, and uh, this guy um, who was who was an American who he was an expat who owned the coffee shop. He was kind of a local history enthusiast himself. He lived there. He married a Chinese woman and. He's like, oh yeah, you're interested in local history. You might think this is interesting. And he handed me this book, and it was it was a book about the rice riot, and it was sort of a popular history book, and it was interesting. But what really struck me about it was um, in the appendix of the book were these oral histories. As a historian, I was like, oh wow, wow, you know, and uh, none of these oral histories had ever been used uh, in English language scholarship before. And I found copies of these oral histories in other in other Chinese language sources, and then I was able to get in touch with the author of the book, this woman named Tang Ying, who's a local uh, writer and member of the Changsha Literary Association, and she's just a very very sweet woman, and uh, I got to meet with her quite a bit, and and she had actually collaborated with uh, with the man who actually had done these interviews, Liu Duping, in the seventies. They had collaborated on this book together, and I ended up getting to meet him at his house uh, right toward the end of my field work from 2012 to 2013, and I, I got to meet him. He's very old. Yeah, so that's sort of how I found the oral histories, and then uh, when you combine those with the other archival work that I did in the in the city, um, it lends a lot to the, to the overall project and the overall dissertation. So which really takes these riots from just sort of a blip on the radar screen to really representing the unique tensions at one moment in time. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Absolutely. Well, this has been fascinating, and I'm sorry we're out of time, but I uh, would like to thank you for being with us. This has been another episode. We'll see you next time. You can find a transcript of this episode, along with supplemental documents, suggestions for further reading, and correlations to this Texas and National Educational Standards for History and Geography on our website, blogs.utexas.edu backslash 15-minute history. That's the numerals 1-5-minute history. You can also find a link to suggest topics for upcoming episodes. The University of Texas at Austin is a free speech campus. Opinions and viewpoints expressed in episodes of 15-minute history do not represent the official position of the University of Texas or of any of its colleges or departments. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.